The funny thing about being a writer is that you get to spend all this time alone in the darkness, putting down your strangest thoughts on paper, knowing full well that they may never be read by a single soul. And then one day you get your own podcast and you have as a guest a writer who's published quite frequently and widely read, and you have a fascinating conversation about the meaning of life and death. This is my conversation with Mike Oppenheim. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Mike Oppenheim. Mike, uh, you may know from his ongoing newspaper essay series, The Casual Casuist. You may know him from his podcast, weekly podcast, Coffin Talk, which offers uh, ruminations on death. Or you may know him from his several books, many, many books, Dysfunction, Baby Doll, The Book, uh, Too True to Be Good from 2017, The Apology, and his forthcoming novel is Ardor, which will hopefully be out uh, later this year. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. What are, what are some of the things you, that uh, you like to cover on, uh, in your essays? I just released essay number 415, I think. So to summarize all 400-something would be next to impossible only because they come out weekly. So we're talking about like... This column I've been writing since 2009, so it's on its 13th year. Um, originally, I think it was more like kind of snarky, irreverent observations on life. I was a lot younger. Um, but the last two or three years, it's really been focusing on um, bringing some harmony to our society without like a culture war. So helping people kind of see like where maybe their own jump to conclusions logic isn't serving themselves or like other people. And, you know, if we kind of slow down and just take a step back and and look at our world with with a calmer lens i think all of us would be would feel elevated and there would just be less of this in my opinion very false belief that there's currently a culture war i don't think there is one so i'm kind of writing about that recently a lot i think that's a great point there you know we assume we're so programmed and programmable that we even accept bad news like that without question yeah, we're so polarized. Oh, yeah, we're all so... Well, let's at least try to talk to one another. You know, I, I live in the Midwest. I sometimes get out to rural areas where people have viewpoints that I don't share. Um, I have never found the quality of their person to be, you know, uh, to reflect a kind of a, a hatred, animosity, and, uh, you know... Uh, uh, vitriolic attitude. I think it's just a matter of us actually having the opportunity. But how do you how do what do you, how do you suggest we calm down and communicate? Recently, something I've really been focusing on with myself, and it's working, is um, your emotions and your thoughts do not have to be acted on. Uh, there's no 
rule that says when you have an emotion or a thought that you need to act on it, you're allowed to just let them pass. And so I don't believe in blocking them. I'm not saying like ignore your thoughts and suppress your emotions. I'm saying the opposite. Feel them, feel your feelings, let your thoughts come and go, but don't act on them. Like you don't need to tell people what you're thinking and you don't need to tell people how you're feeling. You should process it yourself and that that can be enough. So that's my most useful suggestion for people right now is these almost every ad you see online and on TV is designed to provoke you. And it's, it's the way they get engagement. And so engagement is the new, like modern miracle to, to, to sales. And, and that's not good or bad. I don't care about labeling what it is. I only care about how it's affecting people. And so if the way to get people engaged is to provoke them, then maybe when we're provoked, we need to be one step ahead of that. And, and like I said, feel those feelings, think those thoughts, you know, it's, it's fine. There's no, there's nothing wrong with an emotion or a feeling. And I find that like when I get angry, if I like allow myself to be angry, it goes away pretty quickly. I have been working on that myself, working on through meditation and just patience. I just, you know, we sometimes think we have more patience than we have because we're keeping stuff on it. We're not losing our shit like right away. And that all of a sudden makes us feel like we're somehow patient. But really, we're not. We're not really trying to be patient. The phrase, this too shall pass, is so mm. apt. And I think what happens to your point is that as soon as we do overcome that, that urge, the media that we're exposed to, the advertising we're exposed to, everybody gears up again for another cycle. So there's another cycle of crazy input that we're, that we're dealing with. I think a lot of what we, how we respond to things also comes from our upbringing. What was your upbringing like? Actually, it's pretty funny because you, you mentioned meditation. Um, so I grew up uh, a Jewish American, but I'm using air quotes around that only because my parents spend a lot more time focusing on meditation <laughs> than they did on Judaism. And so it's, it's more to me, my moral philosophy and most of my upbringing is reflected in meditation. So they taught me, um, the famous, uh, transcendental meditation, which the Beatles made popular in the sixties and Jerry Seinfeld practices it today as well as numerous celebrities. And I only mention that because a lot of people I admire do it. And I think that it's um, actually a core quality, not for creativity per se, but for what you just mentioned, like actually keeping yourself calm enough to just like not get overwhelmed by society. So, so definitely my upbringing was riddled with meditation. And of course, like most adolescents, I kind of fought against it. So there were years where I didn't do it, but um, I've been meditating consistently now for 20 something years. I wish my, my parents had been more meditative I mean, they were great parents, but I think there was a sense of, oh, I don't know. I don't want to overblow it, but really it's like, you know, there's an expectation. There's an expectation of something and uh, ingrained is some bit of fear of exploration and going outside the boundaries and, and breaking stuff and and just a fear of a fear of failure or a fear of even failure as a person, not material failure, but failure, uh, you know, in, in our faith, failure in our, in our fortitude and uh, making mistakes. So I think with meditation, there's much less emphasis on, uh, there's certainly a, a sense of impermanence, of transience. So 
you don't beat yourself up over every over every mistake. And uh, and I don't even know where I get that really. My parents didn't beat me up over my mistakes, but I I came to really want to not make mistakes. That's the that was the takeaway. So however it happened, that was the takeaway. Um, so what when you were when you were growing up, did you know did you did you write? Did you know you wanted to be a writer? Um, gosh, you know, it's funny because when I retrace it all, yes, I can tell you the answer short answer is yes, but I would never have thought of it that way until I was much older. But when I was a little kid, one of my earliest memories from grade school is organizing a newspaper and comic book with like a bunch of kids in an after school program. And I have no idea where I came up with the idea. Um, I'm sure because I was reading like Mad Magazine and like stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I, at some point I just decided. And so I was like a editor, but I also remember writing for it. And like, you know, I thought it was like the best thing ever. We made like one issue or something, uh, you know, like that. But then I was overtaken by a love of music. And so for the next like uh, 15 years, I, I played guitar, I played drums, I sang, and I was in a band uh, after college for a while. So, uh, but the thing is, while I like my music a lot and while we were like somewhat successful, what actually the best part of my music by far, anyone who listens to it will tell you this, is the writing. I was a good songwriter. I was much better at songwriting than performing and uh, writing guitar riffs and bass lines and things like that. Um, so now that I'm older, I see that like writing was always at the core of everything I was doing. I also used to write screenplays and make movies, but I didn't think I was writing screenplays. I thought I was making movies. So yes, I have always loved the written word and loved creating, but especially with pen and paper or you know laptops now. Yeah, I did that too as a kid, wrote plays for my friends and I'd act out, wrote little movies for us to make, but the idea was the movie or the play. Like I didn't sit there going, oh man, I really love this experience of sitting in my room. I wanted to get that done as fast as possible. Get it get it all written out, written out and stapled together and handed out. I remember casting a production of Willy Wonka in how how dorky is this? Casting a production of Willy Wonka in my probably third grade class or something. Walking around with scripts, which which I had to go to the library and photocopy, you know, so the librarian knows I'm a dork. And then I, I'm handing it, and then I'm casting someone as Willy Wonka, casting someone as whatever, and just ridiculous. I mean, look, we all do, you know, silly shtick when we're kids. Another one of my friends was a meteorologist at five years old, coming and writing the temperature on the board and, and giving the weather report. You know, there's there's... There's very little you can do in school to not get beat up. I mean, there's like, there's, there's, there's you know, almost everything requires some, some getting beat up. Um, totally. Speaking, speaking of getting, getting beaten up um, and, uh, and what ultimately happens to us in life. So where did, how did uh, Coffin Talk come about? Yeah, so this story is... I know it's a strange segue. But yeah, it just, no, no, I no. Wanted to... it's, it's good actually, and I did want to mention that I think we still, you and I, like specifically, we still are like little kids. We have this enthusiasm. We're doing podcasts, you know, like, um, you know, because a podcast is really like a kid playing in his bedroom with like other adults, and you know, we we like right. use Zoom and other apps and stuff. But um, and I love that. I mean, I think if anything, society and culture should be more about like not not like the inner child thing from the '90s, but it, it's it's easier than that. Just like whatever your tendencies are for joy, I mean, by all means, just do them. Don't care about who's watching and what your audience is. So, uh, but anyway, back, back to the coffin talk thing. Um, 
I, uh, I used to do hospice care, um, and it was not my job, so I wasn't paid to do that. I was a volunteer. And uh, the more and more I did it, the more I would listen to these people as they were dying, and they were all saying the same thing, which is like, I wish I'd done this differently. I wish I'd not done this. I wish I still wasn't like talking to my family and stuff. And, and there was a lot of a lot of remorse and a lot of regret. And the theme that was like overarching that I noticed was these people had not thought a lot about the end. So they had made decisions without thinking about how those decisions would feel as they were leaving this existence. And uh, so my, sh my show coffin talk is designed to raise what I call mortality awareness, which is your, your acceptance and awareness of your own mortality and then acting like it. Um, Acting like a person who's going to someday die is very different than acting like a person who's never going to die. <laughs> Act um, as if. Yeah. Act as if. <laughs> um, you don't get to keep yeah. toys, as we all know. You know, there's that very famous saying, like, uh, he who dies with most toys still dies. And so I think if we are all aware that we're going to die, then maybe we'll collect less toys, metaphorically speaking. Maybe we'll be nicer to people. You know, I don't expect kids on the playground to be nicer because we just talked about that. And that's you know, human nature. But as we get older, that's what compassion is all about. That's what aging is all about is learning how to hear other people and give them the space to be themselves and not to judge ourselves or them in any context. What, it, what are some, some chief regrets that, that people express? I mean, you touched on some, what are, do, do, do people, well, when, they, when they're reflecting on their mortality, is there, is there an inspiration that comes from it to do better since they are still here? I guess that's what uh, I was kind of trying to say. I don't really think so, but I should mention that I was in a dementia ward. So a lot of the people I was um, interacting with were not always all there. Um, but there were a few like who were very, very clear. And usually it was because like for a funding reason, they got transferred to this place. So they were kind of like, you know, uh, remember the movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, it, it, the dementia ward yeah, is a lot. Course. Yeah, yeah. So the dementia ward is a lot like that. There's some like really out there people who only because you know something has happened to their brain towards the end of life, but you know they could be any age. But then there were these like really, really aware people who weren't like that. But in addition to them, the number one regret by far was I wish I'd worked less. By far, it wasn't even close. There's there's a second for sure, but far and away, everyone just kept saying I wish I'd worked less. And I, and I really listen to that, and I do not work as much as I used to. It really helped me. It's great to hear because I, I also want to espouse that, that carpe diem attitude of seizing the moment and doing what we do well and doing as much of it as we can do and as we're inclined to do. And what that really comes down to for a lot of us is overcoming a fear that our enjoyment is antithetical to our material success. I remember working in, uh, there was a, in New York in the 90s, there was a, a store called 47th Street Photo. It was an electronic store. It was very famous at the time and all the, everybody would come in there. And I remember saying to the manager one day, uh, you know, oh, I'm just not, I'm just not happy, you know, selling computers. And he, he looked at me and he called me Heshi because it's like my nickname or whatever. He would say, Heshi, who's happy? <laughs> who's happy? <laughs> and I really like, I was like, I don't know. I, I think people are happy. He's like, look around. Anybody happy? Or I go, well, these people are all waiting online. 
The salesmen are all on their feet for 12 hours. You know, of course we're not. He goes, all right, so, you know, have a little sponge cake. It was, but, but, but we feel like in many ways, if we're happy, it'll be at the, at the, at the, at the expense of our success. And if we're focusing only on things that bring us joy, we may not get paid of, of the money we need to do that. I used to think that artists were the people who followed their joy. Sometimes they got the big payoff, the brass ring, you know, the whatever they were, movie stars, singers, you know, Grammy winners, whatever they are. But other people that were regular people would do their regular job and they didn't need that joy. Like they weren't missing it. And of course, it's a very childish thing to think, but, you know, people who are out there delivering newspapers and, and working on different, you know, doing accounting are not in it for joy. They're not looking for joy, but of course that's innate, you know? Um, and what about death as, do you talk about what death might be like or look like? Yeah, it's a huge part of the show. It's actually the only question that I have ahead of time. There's just one question that I ask every single guest and it's, what do you think happens when you die? And at first, I would ask it like first, right away. But I actually found that a much better strategy is to kind of interview the person, get to know them, then ask it, and then see how it has applied in the past to how they're living, and then perhaps how it might change in the future. So we have, um, let's see, we've released, as of today, 79 episodes. I've recorded, I think, 83. And by the time this comes out, who knows how many will be out. But, but the point is... Um, we try to get eclectic people. So we try to have like, uh, at first we had like a couple of rabbis on some priests. We had psychologists. Um, we had a death penalty attorney. Um, one of our guests, uh, had a prenatal experience. So he remembers his life before birth. Um, and that's a fantastic episode. I mean, that one just blew me away. So yes, the answer is yes, we do. And we ask every person and, uh, we try to have atheists. We just had a Mormon woman on. Um, yeah. So we're, we're trying to hear, also, not just what a religion tells you is going to happen, but what you believe is going to happen. Well, it's great to have examples that people can share of what did happen. People who people who uh, had, you know, d d who died, who were dead on the table, you know, that kind of thing. Have you had people who came back from being dead? Uh, yeah, we've we've had one person who had a near-death experience uh, where he was being choked to death by a police officer. It, no, it was not any famous <laughs> thing because there's a lot of... Then we have another one coming up who I haven't actually interviewed yet with uh, a much longer one that was in a hospital. So I'm excited to hear his. I actually was a child. I guess I did have a morbid curiosity. I used to read near-death experience books like all the time. I remember on like any... you know, And I was actually... Uh, when I was 18, I was in the hospital for a little bit and... It, uh, I remember asking every doctor who came in, have you ever had a patient with a near-death experience? And I, I, they were like, what is wrong with you? Aren't you concerned about what's going on with you? And I was like, yes, but I, I'm, I never get to talk to you people. And one of them told me, uh, he said, I'm as scientific as they get, and I don't believe in God. And he said, but the only thing that's ever made me question that is the two near-death experiences that I witnessed. Wow. When I talk to someone who has had a near-death experience or uh, – it's so it's so different, obviously, like you pointed out. It's so different from someone who t is telling you about theology or what they believe happens, which can be very, very fascinating, but of course, it's inconclusive, you know? Um, we don't know what happens. We don't know conclusively. 
That's why when people talk about, you know, suicide and saying, oh, well, all that it's selfish, but all their problems are over. I was listening to Jerry Stahl, the writer, Jerry Stahl, and he was on Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, and he said, are you really sure? Are you sure that nothing happens? That the problems are all over? I mean, it is possible that there's some kind of horrible fate that awaits people in, in, in death, and if, if they committed suicide and then they, and then they realize that it's worse, it's worse now, there's no proof that that's not the case, which I repeat because I think it's great food for thought for anybody to, to think about just in terms of how we all think if we have it bad and we're depressed about something and the world's really bringing us down, well, we really don't know what's on the other side. So what are some of your other interests? What are, what are some things that you like to do that bring you joy? Um, yeah, my number one thing right now, and I never saw this coming, is actually yoga, hot yoga. Um, I absolutely love it. I started doing it um, because I, I was afraid of exercising in public. Um, I can't really explain it any better than you were trying to explain, like, childhood. But I just have this, like, instinctual fear of, like, being <laughs> judged while exercising. I'm sure it comes from PE or something like that. But um, And so uh, I also don't like, like, sweating in public and being, like – disgusting and so for some reason i i think it was actually for you know for one an essay because i used to do kind of like self challenges for my essays so i decided to go and it blew me away i loved it i feel like very healthy after i do it um i've been i've been, i was in a car accident like uh let's see in 2008 so uh 14 years ago but i have a lot of residual effects from it and yoga really helps me with those so that's a that's an activity i enjoy that's like wholesome and good for you um i love television i've always loved television since i was a little kid so um i absolutely with pride to tell people that I love television and I watch a lot of TV. Um, and, uh, I have a awesome wife and a beautiful daughter here. So I spend a lot of time with our daughter who's just one. So, you know, how like, I mean, it's, it's a full-time job. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm in that phase of life. And then, um, I think my main interest, if I had more time, I would do it even more. is just reading. I just love education, conversations, um, learning, from other people is one of my absolute favorite things to do. I'm uh, for someone who talks as much as I do and writes as much as I do, I'm surprisingly good at listening and I like hearing other people's stories. So yeah, I'm learning to be, to be good at listening. People tell me I'm good at listening, but that's probably just my facial set where I appear (laughs) to be listening and I'm really thinking about something else. My wife knows the (laughs) truth. My wife can figure that out because because she'll be, she'll be talking to me about something and I'll be doing the, having the attentive face on and she'll be like, what are you, what are you thinking about? But that's an improvement because it started where I would just walk away in the middle of the conversation. <laughs> I've, I've, I've done that. That's an, you know, but I also have, have realized that we all have ADHD. We all have yeah. it. All the psychologists are saying it. Every time, it doesn't even have to do with medication. Kid, kid throws a plate across the room, ADHD. Takes a shit in the, in the living room, ADHD. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just a thing now. We all have it. We all have it. But, but, I, I, but I appreciate the, 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 the fact that the loving to read and being, being a writer and loving to read because we get so much inspiration from everything that we absorb and the same with TV. Have you, have you worked in the, in the film medium at all? 
Yeah, actually, it was funny when you mentioned the 47th store. Uh, my brother has lived in New York City since 1997, and I was born outside of New York City. So um, I definitely know the store you're referring to. At least I think I do. Was it on Broadway or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there was there was a, a 47th and Broadway, a 45th and Broadway, I think. Okay. And 47th and 8th or something like that. Yeah. They had okay, two, yeah, they had I... two stores there. So I was a yeah, filmmaker 45th in college. And Broadway was, 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 okay, yeah. I, I totally, when you said it, it like clicked, and I've definitely been in there. Um, and I, I applied yeah. to NYU. I didn't get in, but that was like my big dream as a um, 17-year-old was to go to NYU Film School. I went to University of Pittsburgh instead, but I still majored in film and made some films. And so I loved it. And uh, actually, during COVID, we were so bored, and we didn't have a kid yet. I cannot stress this enough. So my wife and I made um, a television show and we put out, uh, 40 episodes in like a little under two years. And, uh, those are also on my webpage if people want to completely geek out. Um, I'm actually really proud of them, but they did not catch on very well. So, but that, that, and, and I, I also made, I mean, I think making content during COVID was like the only thing that kept me sane and nobody saw it. <laughs> my friends saw it. And I think it helped them the same way it helped me just to do zany shit and just have it be funny and, whatever but you know being able to what you and your wife were doing is in a way you were reaching the outside world you were connecting with wasn't just you guys making something you were sharing it you know you were sending a signal out a smoke signal or something like that um have have you wanted to to adapt or see any of your your novels adapted into uh into entertainment Actually, I'm really, really excited for this new novel, Ardor, to come out because I found a really cool publishing house that seems to get me, and I like them. So I've really been enjoying the process, um, and it's been really wonderful. And I actually think of all the uh, novels I've written, this is the one that would most quickly adapt to the screen. So I, um, it's cool because once it's out, that's kind of like up to other people to approach me about it, which is different than going to Hollywood and trying to sell a script. So yes, I would I would love for my newest novel, Ardor, to be turned into one. And then my second book, which you said the title of Baby Doll, the book, is a, a big joke about books and movies. And so that one was uh, totally written so that it could be made into a movie someday. And and my goal was that it would be called Baby Doll, the book, the movie. So <laughs> so, so tell me about the Baby Doll, the book. What 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 is it? Uh, what is it about? Sure. And actually, this is in a weird way segues into like uh, one of the weirder moments of my life. But I had this like dream one night and it was so vivid and powerful and I, I will never forget it. But it was like rain was striking a sign and the sign said the Plessy Motel and it was P-L-E-A-C-Y. And uh, and I woke up and I in my head it said, find the Plessy Motel in San Bruno and or not San Bruno. Sorry. Um Oh my God, it's been years. I'm going to forget the name, but uh, I could look it up right now, but I won't do that. Um, the point is, I looked up the name of the city and it was a real city in California. And it was actually where Richard Nixon grew up. And so I looked up Plessy Motel and there was nothing like that. So I, I, again, I mean, it sounds like corny, but like I downloaded this like whole book. Like, I don't know where it came from, but it, it is about, um, it is about a person living in Oakland, California in the eighties who falls asleep one night and wakes up in a prehistoric cave. And in the cave are Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud, and they're trying to build a time machine to get back to the future. And uh, while they're there, they do build a machine, and it lets them view the future. And so they're viewing the future, and they're seeing this time-traveling um, hobo, homeless person, who is 
like unaware that he has a magical item that is if it falls into the wrong hands, going to destroy the universe. And so that's the premise of Baby Doll, the book. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, now I know I'm going to have to get that book and binge it because that's that kind of level of fantasy is exactly the stuff that I loved when I was young. I had a, you know, I, I loved stories that were improbable, implausible, and unrealistic, fantastic, and not just, you know, sci-fi or... Uh, or comedies, you know, uh, slapstick comedies, which also had a had a level of, you know, you watch the Three Stooges, you know, that's not really, you're not really going to see that. Abbott and Costello, you're not going to see those guys in the French Foreign Legion, uh, you know, Dracula and all that, making fun of all of the tropes from horror films and all that stuff. And then ultimately, Mel Brooks, you get into spoofing genres, all these things that turn our belief systems on their ear are fun. And I think, you know, that's another thing to go back to what we started talking about. A way to, to introduce people from, dis, from disparate points of view to comedy and, and satire and slapstick in its, you know, in its less emotional form. You know, have people who are on either side of the political spectrum sit down and watch Abbott and Costello, you know, uh, you know, meet Frankenstein or whatever, meet the Invisible Man, and just enjoy that stuff together, because, you know, I think I think, you know, it's it's it takes away all that all that anger and bile and stuff that's, you know. Can you yeah. make that happen? <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm pitching it to you, Mike. I'm just, I'm just thinking you have influence and you, you have a, you have a platform and you have, uh, you have an audience and, uh, and you can, you can, you can will those things into being if you, if you feel like it, you can you make know, those things happen. Um, it's funny. Um, you've mentioned influence twice, and I came across a quote this morning on influence that kind of blew my mind. So I just figured I'd throw this out there. I don't really have a larger, deeper point I'm going to make with it, but um, I'm sure most okay. people are familiar with Lao Tse, I think is how you say it, and he wrote the Tao Te Ching. Um, so the Tao, the Tao, which is pretty famous from China. And he was talking about leadership, and he said that um, the most important thing in leadership, well, there's three things, but one of them is unimportance by which one finds influence. So he, it's interesting because I was thinking about that all morning and most of the day, which is like, we live in a culture where the word influence is now used as a, you know, a, a job title. You're an influencer. And, um, and, you know, we just had this like horrific moment in history where people argued about who's influencing our elections. We had two, you know, the, the 16 and 20 election. Um, was it Russia? Was it bots? Was it other people? And so I've been thinking a lot about influence. And yeah, I think fiction is the best way to reach people because it's not heavy handed. It doesn't carry a literal message to it and it lets the reader draw their own conclusions. And I think that's why in school we make kids actually read it and then write those essays is like when you read 1984, it's actually not overtly against something. It's just really a novel that's kind of scary about a dystopia. But I think the average person who reads it is going to come away with the same conclusion, which is, okay, if taken too far, surveillance is really, really bad. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I do actually have that goal and I know we're kidding, but I'm also completely serious. Yes. I would love to positively influence the world through my essays, which are nonfiction, my fiction 
works and then especially the podcast you know um and i think you're doing it too and i, I want to say by the way before i yeah. forget you're very very funny <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's awesome thank you man well that's 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 very meaningful praise coming from you i really uh um and, and i was serious about wanting to be more familiar with your work i was like oh shit i can't believe i'm interviewing this guy tomorrow you know and i'm like you know, I was excited to have you on and I was familiar with the casual casuist and then Coffin Talk I kind of knew about. And then I was like, oh, you know, this is really fascinating. And, and, and then the books and so and the sense of humor that you bring to uh, to this stuff, because it is absurd. You know, we our our struggle to understand what is going to happen when we when we die did you call it did you say exit interviews with the living is yeah, that how you the, refer to it yeah that's the subtitle of the podcast coffin talk like the tagline uh, interviews i love that because because not just because of its cleverness but because it it really cuts to the to the heart of what you're trying to do which is give people a chance to think about the inevitable which is exactly what so many of us are resisting right now. We're looking at climate change. We're looking at, you know, countries at war. We're looking at, you know, democracy being in the state that it's in globally, not just for us. And there's a part of us that doesn't want to cop to it. We don't really want to accept that these things are even happening, much less that the outcome could be grave. But that, but there's bad stuff, and we, we can do things about it, but what do you think we, what do you think would be a good attitude to bring to the world today with so much going on that we can't hide from and can't necessarily stop, some of it maybe, but, you know, what would what's your advice to to mankind? Yeah, I think it's it's really cliche at this point, but it's that old like saying where when I was young, I tried to change the opinions of the world. When I was older, I tried to change the opinions of my family. And then when I was much older, I finally realized the only thing I can change is myself. And so I think uh, more self-reflection, more self-awareness, more realizing that like your anger and your rage at other people's politics is not in any way appropriate it's it's your opinion and like you said we don't know what happens when you die we don't know if suicide is punished or not we don't know why we're here um, i've always had a very funny feeling for lack of a better word that no matter how bad this gets i was waiting in a line to get here like i was like i have a feeling that this experience is like a ride at an amusement park with a really long wait and people just wait forever for it because i think free will is what is going on here and so i think the problem with the world is that people want to curtail others free will instead of fanning it in the right directions. Um, so, you know, uh, like I said, with child rearing, it's like, you just kind of like walk around them and you just make sure they don't like die, but you got to let them like explore. You can't just stick your kid in a crib 24 seven and be like, nothing's ever going to hurt you and you're going to be safe. So we all have to explore. And, and some of us explore hard and we, we die in caves scuba diving and others of us, explore mentally and we read tons of books and we have like insane knowledge but we don't know how to share it with others and so you know i think we're all here in a very unique experience and my advice for the world would like literally be enjoy your experience and critique your your own experience but like you know and again it's hard because I, I did listen to what you said and i and as you mentioned all i was like you know there are some really bad 
things going on in other countries that are absolutely unignorable and there's bad things going on in ours as well but like there's a next level threat in in modern china for example and even just saying this puts me on a list where i can probably never visit that country but um you know they have they have social quotas and social um uh social currency and they've actually like they they have a they have no cash anymore they just have a digital yuan and so they they removed bank accounts from people for from inappropriate behavior and bad social ratings bad social scores that's the most terrifying thing in the world to me so i'm saying all this to to show your audience that no i'm not like this oblivious meditating idiot who like thinks oh bliss is internal and you can just ignore it all but you don't have to do something about it and you don't have to yell about it you need to be aware of it and then like make sure that things are good here like work on you know communication and stuff so you know it's it's the best answer i can give to an absolutely impossible yet really good question to ask it's a great answer it honestly is in my opinion because focusing inward is the indelicate way to say that is well you know fix yourself focus on your own fucking problems that's like you know that's <laughs> one way but really really working on yourself and improving yourself means that if everybody were to do that if everybody were to take the advice then everybody would be focusing a little bit on their self-improvement and on making their little their little corner their little space a little more humane a little happier a little you know a tidal wave of goodness and positivity can come from billions of people just deciding to be kind or deciding to be compassionate uh so even though every every little bit of garbage that we throw in the compost may not seem like it like it really is doing very much it is gratifying to know that if everybody's doing a little bit then you know we can we can make more uh happiness and have our have our own impact you know i want to i want to end with that vision of of influence yeah i think um my final thought and it's very new to me but it's from this podcast is there's a joy in creation and whether your creativity is like internal or external and whether you're out there putting it out for other people or just for yourself um i've never seen a child not have a desire to create you know and whether it's it's building bridges or engineering i mean creativity is everywhere in the human condition and so i think when we talk about our jobs and making money and working and stuff it's not that you need to quit your job and try to make money from your creative creativity but it's like when you're not working try to do something creative because i think that outlet makes life a joy and and look we all got to pay the bills you know i have a side job that i do in addition to my career with writing and everything and you know my hope is that it becomes less and less as i become more successful but even if it don't i have a good attitude because in my free time i spend a lot of time creating and and i i'm learning this from you though i want to make this specific to this podcast like i didn't come in today thinking about this but in our conversation it became aware and and i complimented your sense of humor so i'll end with that i'll say one of the reasons your sense of humor is good is cuz you actually are laughing and enjoying yourself like it's very obvious it's contagious thank you so much mike thanks so much for tuning into truth tastes funny if you enjoyed the experience please leave a five star review and share this podcast with your friends